Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 424 in our network. Before we get rolling today, just want to thank a couple of people. We're going to forego ad reads today and, and get right to the nitty gritty. But Jaw Bats, appreciate uh, the partnership. If you guys are interested in a well-made bat, to go to Jaw Bats, the newest certified bat in Major League Baseball. Use RVG at checkout. Get yourself a brand new bat uh, with a discount on us. Jeff Fry used one the other day down in his fantasy camp, the Red Sox. First ever fantasy at bat with a jaw bat. He got a, a double. I don't know. I don't know if he quite hit the wall, but he was close. And then Tanner's using it now. He's, he loves it lefty and righty. He uses the M110 model. Um, well balanced. So jaw bats, we can't recommend them more highly. RBG at checkout. As far as our podcast goes, uh, announced last week that we were nominated for, for Sports Podcast Group Baseball Podcast of the Year. Um, you know, against some big dogs there. So don't know how it's going to turn out, but we're fortunate in less than two years, we're making some noise out there with our 65,000 subscribers supporting us. And then we just got one, uh, yesterday, a nomination. I have to fill out the paperwork today. You should just get a trophy, Jim. You don't have to fill out paperwork for stuff, but, uh, and I have to check on the name. So I apologize if I get it wrong. It's either the Webbies or the Weebies. So Webbies probably sounds more correct, but, uh, and then thanks to our newest partner in marketing, Millions, um, took over our advertising and marketing now, and uh, we're excited to get rolling with them. We, a little bit yesterday, but we'll get full throttle as of the start of next week. So with that, um, had a great guest on last week, TC, and got some follow-up on, on his stuff today. I know we've got him on tomorrow again with Mark Wiley to talk a little bit more, but uh, excited about that one. And you got, got some follow-up on it today, Jim. So welcome back to your show. Well, thank you, Dave, and hello, everybody. Hope we're all doing well. Um, yeah, I mean, since having TC on last week, and I, I knew this was going to happen after all the years I've been together with him and heard his stories and, and see how, um, you know, as, you, as you've said in the past, he's a guy that does his thing. Now, sometimes people um, maybe aren't as appreciative because they think they everything should be structured and measurable and, and, and they kind of take the human relations part out of it. But the number one thing that TC has always been is been as a great personality and has the ability to relate to other people so that he not only motivates them, but he helps them. And then they end up trusting him and believing in him. And then, you know, that's half the battle right there. Um, I've loved his enthusiasm. That's to, to me, you know, the guys that we have attracted to the podcast host first, but then the guests that we bring on, they've all been expert in their fields. Uh, the thing that set TC apart from, you know, from, from, uh, from a lot of people, again, just knowing him the, the one time and talking to him, his enthusiasm is through the roof, not just for what he does, but it's, it's almost like I said this to him on the phone when I talked to him, I said, it's almost like he expects magic in every sentence. And uh, it, it's fun to be around. It's infectious. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that they, they think that there's not enough uh, hours in a day to get done what they need to get done. And uh, Tommy, I think, is the opposite. There's, <clears throat> there's not enough hours to contain all that he has to offer. And uh, he's just kind of bubbling over with, uh, you know, now that he, uh, <clears throat> he's working out of his home in Florida and traveling around and doing different things to help people. Um, he's like a lot of the podcasts here. He, he's just trying to spread the word because he sees what's going on in the modern game of baseball. 
and in life. And he's just trying to help people steer clear of some of the disasters in the, in the potholes. Um, yeah. But one of the things that came, we, we, we've received, uh, I've received great feedback uh, from people that regularly listen, whether it's my friends, family, and others in, in the world of baseball. I've taken a couple of calls uh, from prominent baseball individuals uh, who know TC, <clears throat> commented on how good he was, um, what a great show it was, and then offered up three or four guests from baseball. Jim, I think this would be great guys to talk to and <clears throat> along the lines of what you and Tommy spoke of. Um, the greatest one I'd have to say is, uh, believe it or not, Dr. James Andrews sent TC a, a, a message. Congratulating them. Podcast was phenomenal. You're awesome. Can't wait to continue uh, our relationship in the future. Um, podcast was phenomenal. You know, would be something that I might even love doing because uh, you guys were spreading a, a positive word and, and laying it out there the way it's supposed to be. So that was quite a compliment from someone who's had his uh, his thumb on the pulse of the, all these injury problems, and he sees it on a day-to-day basis firsthand for the maybe last 30 years. So, Yeah, he's the mothership for that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in today's episode, Recently, we've, we've had a lot of, we've shared a lot of information. Um, and uh, I just think sometimes it's it's good to take a little pause and reflect on uh, the discussions that we've had. And, you know, as what happens a lot of times is the similarities in what everybody had to say. So I think it's a good time today to review some of that. Um, the first thing that jumped out of me, and, and this has been occurring now for a couple of months is on all the different podcasts that we we host here at uh, the Real Voices of the Game. We've had Jim Palmer, Mark Wiley, Will George, and Jim Cott all state, well, we can't expect our pitchers to pitch deep in the game if we don't train them, if we don't ask it of them. We don't ask it of them, let's say, in the showcase or travel environment. You're only pitching a couple of innings because there's other guys that need to pitch, right? They they, they paid their money too, so it's uh, an equal opportunity as long as you paid the money. Um, so in that environment, you know, a lot of two, three inning outings, one inning outings. Um, the college game, I mean, some of the bigger schools, uh, you know, are building those quality bullpens because they have more money to offer. Slowly getting that way, but you'll still see, you know, come World Series time, you know, guys maybe being overused. But but the big thing is uh, in the minor leagues, all the guys have talked about it. You know, we're not asking our minor leaguers. Um, it's like ever since we came out with the some of the parameters for pitch counts. And I'm not talking about pitch counts and workload monitoring for little league age kids or teenagers. I'm talking about people that have reached the status of professional baseball. And we decide initially that pitch counts are what's going to save us from all these type of injuries we're experiencing. Well, that's kind of trying to put a Band-Aid on a a huge wound. Um, That's like a guy needing major surgery, but, you know, we put a 
a Band-Aid on it, and we say, oh, you'll be fine. Um, pitch counts have proven that it's not necessarily the way to, once again, it's a tool to be monitored. It's not the way. And what's that's caused is, I think it fits in with a couple of things that have gone on in the, especially in the minor leagues, in professional baseball. I think it coincides to when um, people that are eligible for the draft currently, current rules state that you can have an advisor and still maintain your amateur status. Well, you know, I, I can say that, uh, that Boris is my advisor, right? I can say that many of the top baseball agents are my advisors. And what that has led to is an increased bonus pool. I mean, in my day, the number one pick in the country, we're talking about the early 80s. Um, If he got $100,000, that was a lot of money. Um, I can remember in my day, the highest bonus that the Baltimore Orioles had ever given out was $85,000 for a first round pick. Or for anyone, it was just the highest. Um, You know, there was rumors back in the Daryl Strawberry days when the negotiations with the Mets dragged on. And Dick Young, the famous sports writer, wrote an editorial about this kid's being compared to the splendid splinter Ted Williams, and he's a natural. And we're pinching pennies, sign him. Uh, it happened also with uh, the big home run king out of Florida State, Jeff Ledbetter, uh, drafted in the first round by the Red Sox, and the negotiations dragged on. And Corey Stremski said to the Red Sox front office, Hey, you took the kid and you thought you can hit, sign him. Now, Carl's son uh, also happened to play at Florida State, so Carl saw firsthand, you know what Ledbetter could do. So that started to elevate it. But when you, the introduction of advisors, okay. So back in the early eighties, if all of a sudden somebody negotiated with, for you, you were then not considered an amateur and you could not go back to, um, to college or enter college. Your amateur status was over. Uh, with the advent of the advisor, Okay, you can have an advisor and you'd keep your amateur status. I mean, I think it was last year, uh, the LSU pitcher, Skeens. Don't necessarily know if I've got the number exact, but his signing bonus broke every single record standing. I think it was $10.5 million. Um, So when you see that, now your thought process is, I understand something, if the, if the first pick is getting $10.5 million, there's a lot of $5 million guys, $5 million guys in the first round. And that trickles down to, you know, now you're getting second or third round and fourth round that might be getting a million dollars, depending on how a, an organization allocates his draft, the, the draft pool money. You're seeing guys after 10th round when those restrictions are off or those, uh, if you want to say, advisements of what you should spend are off. And now that 11th round pick, I mean, uh, my brother had a 
young right-handed pitcher that pitched for him, was drafted uh, after the 10th round by the Angels and uh, set the record for the highest signing bonus after the 10th round. I, I don't know the exact number, but it was in the ballpark of a million, a million five, a million two, something like that. So when all these guys show up to their first mini camp in the minor leagues, um, we are now trying to do things so they don't get hurt. All right. The problem is, is we've adopted a path <clears throat> that I say is very similar to the uh, three first round picks back in the day that pitched for Rice University. And uh, it's been documented that they all knew they were going in the first round. So their last year, they stopped um, doing a lot of their workouts and different things. They didn't want to do something that might injure them, especially off the field stuff. Uh, and I believe all three of them within two years of being drafted ended up being injured anyway. So it's like, Okay, here's the pitch count. Now, in my years as a pitching coordinator, yes, we used pitch counts because we did want to monitor workload. But it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, okay, you're an A-ball, you can throw 100 pitches. It was monitoring workload over the course of the five days, over the course of the week, 10 days, month, half season, full season. Um, as Jim Palmer once said, the Orioles used to use radar guns, not to see how fast the pitcher was. Obviously they used the old ray gun, which, uh, was easily four to five miles an hour slower than the old jugs guns of the day. But, uh, they weren't looking for what the person's velocity was. They were looking for if the guy's throwing 90 in the first month of the season and in the second month of the season, he's throwing 87. Well, obviously something's going on. We have to investigate. It was a tool in which to monitor workload. Right? Isn't, it, isn't it also good to like, um, you know, to, to just show the difference between the, you know, let's say fastball and changeup, make sure there's a, an appropriate difference or at least knowing that. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But, but once again, even what you just said, Dave, you're using it as a tool to yeah. monitor something. It's not the end all the be all. It's not the answer. So when we decide, uh, and nowadays, I mean, there, there's, there's guys that go into their first year of pro ball, you know, and might throw uh, two innings at a time for their first season, for their first summer. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, now, I'm not saying that this is correct, but I mean, we've heard the stories from Jim Palmer when he first signed out of Scottsdale High School as an 18-year-older and went to the minor leagues, he, you know, the number of innings he threw. And then shortly when he got to the big leagues, he, 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 he recalled throwing 275 innings and he was still a youngster. Uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that's the, the extreme correct. I can remember throwing in my draft year approximately 100 innings in college and then um, oh, about 70 during the summer. And then another 40 in instructional ball. So we're talking 210 innings when before that coming out of the Northeast, I might have maybe thrown, you know, 50 to 70 innings um, a spring and summer combined. 
you know, from let's say your high school or your college and then your, your summer season team. Um, so there in itself was quite a jump and it probably was a, not a highly recommended jump, you know, but, it, but it just gets back to, again, whether it's to the extreme side, extreme high side or extreme low side, it's about what the workload and how the workload is monitored, not how, you know, what the number is when the, when the season ends. And I came across an interesting article, uh, on the blogs and fan graphs, um, uh, today or tomorrow morning, I will post on um, Facebook uh, the two things that we're talking about right now, the, the article on fan graphs, and it was uh, entitled the shrinking, the shrinking starting pitcher workload. And quickly in the article, they're not necessarily saying that at that time period, some of the starting pitchers in the big leagues were that much less. But they were they were pointing out a scary trend in the workload presented to minor league pitchers in their development was shrinking to a very very small amount of innings uh, per summer or per season, and um, so it goes hand in hand with what a lot of our hosts or guests have talked about in the past is we don't ask the pitcher to do that. They're not going to know how to do it. Um, I believe on the last episode of uh, Wiley and Will, they discussed the uh, two big big league pitchers that um, said that the first time they were asked to um, pitch close to the seventh inning was when they were in the big leagues. So obviously that's not necessarily beneficial uh, or the or the right thing to do. I've spoken in the past when um, I would talk to pitchers in low A ball and say, okay, you're going to do, I'm expecting you to make 20, 20 starts this year. And, and we're going to try to get, you know, into the sixth or seventh inning. We're going to learn how to be efficient with our, or our pitch counts. We're going to learn how to get early count outs, how to throw first pitch strikes and the different characteristics that make for a quality starting pitcher or an individual that can pitch deep into games. And I went right up the ladder in high A. I said, I'm expecting you guys, if you think that you have a future as a starting pitcher in the major leagues, to make 25 starts. And in double A, and it was almost five starts a level. But the point is, is that if you can't make 30 starts in double A, how are you going to make 30 starts in the big leagues? I mean, it's a little bit of common sense when you when you think about it. Um, why did they say in the article why they're... I mean, I guess there's that, it's, it's kind of silly because from what I've understood, they're reducing in innings because they want to keep pitchers healthy, but we keep going in a circle. That's why that song was picked this week. The song remains the same as the name of the song, the Led Zeppelin song, Jim Colonel picked it out, but they guys keep getting injured more than ever before. It's, at some point in time, they just kind of take a moment of pause. Like we're doing today. We're taking a moment of pause. We're reflecting on some of the stuff we've given the audience in the past and kind of rehashing it and whatnot. I mean, at what point in time do they just stop and take a look at what's, you know, the casualties lying down in front of them? Right. Um, well, I, I, I believe they're, they're attempting to do that, but I think that there's a, there's a huge fear factor. Are you going to be the guy, whether you're the pitching coach or the coordinator or the director of player development 
or the general manager that puts together a program, and next thing you know, the guy that signed for $3 million is on a DL, or worse yet, is out of baseball. You mean, um, it, it mean them bucking the, the trend, basically? Exactly. Yeah, it's the fear that- is that since these signing bonuses have skyrocketed, the investment an organization has in a player is astronomical. And now that he has this investment, which is a great job by the advisors and agents, because that's what their job is, it's to solidify an investment in their client or in that pitcher that the only way that that organization is going to recoup anything on that investment is for him to pitch in the major leagues. Yeah, now, it's, it's parallel to what the advised. That's that's when they get paid, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I can remember a statement by Boris, and and I, I agree wholeheartedly to it. Um, you know, a quality major league baseball player. The true essence of his value is that if after a six year, a pro ball, and he first decides to enter free agency, if the the club that signed him, developed him, and brought him to the big leagues re-signs him. Now, of course, there's some parameters like small markets that might not be able to afford that type of thing. But his statement was that the true value of a major league baseball player is measured after six years and who wants to now invest money in him. Um, you know, because he's progressed from his minor league days to his rookie days, and now he's a, a prominent individual in Major League Baseball that's going to help an organization. But the fact that those signing bonuses are so large, um, so for example, now Skeens threw a lot at LSU. I don't have the exact number, but you know he was the number one guy. He was a workhorse. He pitched deep in the games, the whole thing. I think he might have made two starts and then this summer, and then he was shut down. Uh, now, we don't know because it's not published what he necessarily did in instructional ball. <coughs> Excuse me. But the trend in, um, the trend in instructional ball nowadays is to uh, excuse me, <coughs> you know, send your young guys there and send your uh, big-time prospects uh, to the fall league. So I don't know if he even pitched in the fall league, to be honest with you. But my point is that Paul Skeens is, un, un, unless he gets, uh, you know, struck by lightning, God forbid, um, Paul Skeens is pitching in the big leagues. And there's going to be a build, big build up, and there's going to be a promotion, and there's going to be a thing. And, and, and then um, the club's open for, you know, his first five to ten starts in the big leagues, there's going to be sellouts and they're going to sell his, sell his jersey and sell his memorabilia and, and they're going to try to start to recoup some of the investment that they have in him. Um, but the actual development process, that's where it gets a little tricky. Um, and, and I relate it to, if you're an owner and you're a businessman, and next thing you know, all your top picks are on the disabled list. 
losing development time and then eventually out of baseball, uh, you're not you're not considering that wise investments. Um, so as we know, the general managers can somewhat control the free agent market when it comes to pitchers or what starting pitchers in the big leagues are paid. Except, of course, when someone gets desperate for pitching and all of a sudden they pay um, Yamamoto $375 million. Um, but I think that's really the, the first hurdle that has to be overcome. How, how do we change our mindset? Um, it's like you're in a draft room and the thing that used to circulate all the time is, um, well, we can't, we can't draft right-handed we can't draft high school right-handed pitchers in first round. And I asked the question, well, why? 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 Why are we making a blanket statement? You know, it's just a generic statement. So every single individual that we might come across, we eliminate them from our draft board because they're a right-handed pitcher coming out of high school. And my thought process on that is, well, the reason we do that is because the track record of high school right-handed pitchers staying healthy and becoming successful pitchers in the big leagues is very minimal. Well, it's minimal because your development process is not good enough. But instead of looking out a complex situation that may con uh, may concern um, a general manager, a director of player development, a pitching coordinator, athletic trainers, strength coaches, minor league pitching coaches is at least five or six of them, uh, rehab pitching coaches. Now, now we have a whole group of individuals that we have to make sure that all of them are top notch and adhering to the programs and understanding and have the ability to monitor workload and monitor fatigue by watching a pitcher, by making uh, proper decisions on the spot. Well, that's a lot of work. So it's much simpler to just simply say, we're not going to draft a right-handed high school pitcher. It sounds, I mean, it's, I, I, I understand the environment too, where it's a, almost like trench warfare. You don't want to put your head up because it'll get shot off. But exactly. uh, how silly is that? Like uh, what's, what's next? Like we're not going to draft guys with brown hair. It's uh, well, yeah, I think um, we just, we just outsourced two of our, as the two, two of the highest or two, the two highest free agent pitchers, you know, we're not even counting Otani. Uh, we just outsourced our pitching to Japan this past offseason in Major League Baseball. Is that, is that not an indication, too, that well, our yes. development's off? Yes. I mean, it's been discussed on a, a, a variety of podcasts and a, and a variety of even the main media has, uh, has come up with those questions. And uh, I'm going to give you an example of something that's sometimes a tool – that is sometimes misused. So recently there's been a, a new interest in, in what's called um, PA, I call it PAP workloads uh, score. Now this was originally, um, I don't know if it was originally created by Bill James, but this is something that goes back at least 20 years, if not a little more, 25 years. Okay. And what it does basically is it attempts to measure the pitches in the game, the type of pitches in the game that take the most out of the pitcher. So 
if we took the group of pitches 115 and, and higher, well, obviously on this scale, they're going to measure those as the most stressful. Okay. Um, there's other parameters, but a majority of the score is based upon the number of pitches and then a little bit about the number of pitches per inning. Okay. And then that's going to assign points, stress points, if you would say. And of course, the higher the points in your final score, the more workload or stress that you uh, had in that start or had in that month or had in that season. Okay. Now, the problem becomes e even the uh, sabermetricians and analytics have had some, you know, uh, conversations and disagreements in that because part of the newer crew that has the new renewed interest in the PAP score has stated that we've refined the PAP score and it's now better than when it was when it first came out. Because when it first came out, I do believe that Bill James, while he understood the need for it and was working on improving it, he said there was other things that it didn't take into account. So it should only be used as a tool. So it's funny that it comes out that way. The um, the so-called um, you know first main published sabermetrician in the baseball world, Bill James, and all the books and all the handbooks and everything that he's professed uh, in two different areas, he has stated something similar. We went over in the past a defensive metric where you know twenty twenty five years ago they didn't have a real quality defensive metric to measure a defensive impact. Whereas nowadays they've developed better ones that does that, um, you know, in their eyes. Yeah. I still and think they're reaching on that stuff though. Yeah. And then on this one, you know, the PAP and Bill James in the past has discussed some of the areas where the PAP score either needed a refinement or there was other things that would have to be taken into consideration. And some of the things that Bill James spoke at the very beginning of the the, wor the world of sabermetrics and baseball had a lot to do with human relationships and human decisions and on the spot and watching pitchers and reading other things that they do and, you know, checking if the velocities are going down, you know, all the things that you would think make common sense. You know, and what? even maybe a little bit of a pitching coach or a pitching coordinator's intuition yeah. uh, and experience. You know what I liked about his original stuff, though, was – and I think what he's done is run, it's run amok basically. But when he first started and he'll, he'll tell, uh, lead te or give testimony to this, he's done it a thousand times. I think he just gets tired of saying it with every number that he put out there, there was always a paragraph or two, which was the story. And he always proclaimed that this is not about math. This is about the English language. This is about telling a story around what happened. And that's not the case anymore. People are new, new numbers. We discussed a new number called SWORD earlier this week on one of the other podcasts. It's a new measurement to, to, to give value to check swings. And it's like, oh, my God, we have more and more numbers, but there's no stories. And not, not to interrupt, but I get, I, James gets dragged through sometimes, but he, he had a good premise in the beginning, but there's no measure to it anymore. People just throw numbers out. But his original thing was the stories. It was the story around the number. And I thought he was really good at that in the beginning, but they don't do that anymore. 
Yes, but remember the current environment. Um, probably in the Bill James days, and um, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but Doug Melvin with the Brewers, he had a saving matrician that did a lot of the work. You know, I've met him, had conversations with him, and we did a lot of good things. He he was a phenomenal person to have a conversation with, and and some of his insights, and then he would ask questions that related to the story, as you say, and that's the human interaction. That's the, that's yes, the- exactly. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but nowadays, so you have a guy that heads up the analytics department and he, he might have 20, 30 guys working for him. Well, that those 20, 30 guys, you know, um, I would say a lot of them were, uh, educated in some of the quality universities in this country and they didn't they don't foresee as their future being um you know an analytics stoolie if you would say working in a department with 30 other guys they envision themselves being the head of that analytics department and then being the head of scouting and then being the general manager that's why they're in the game okay and when you're dealing in the world with numbers if you're the guy that develops the next formula, the next number to improve a situation, you now get a lot of recognition and that's going to help you in your own personal advancement. Um, now the great, everybody creates their own little number like there. They, right, yeah, right, right. right. Uh, sometimes I equated it and I know it, this is a bad one, but <clears throat> it's like, um, It's like a dad who travels a lot, you know, and he's got four kids at home and all of a sudden he comes in the front door and before he can even work, you know, walk up the steps to the living room, the four kids are at the top of the steps. Everybody's calling his name. Everybody wants his attention. Everybody wants to be the first one that plays with him. Everybody wants to be the first one that shows him, you know, his schoolwork or what he drew or what he built, you know, and these are young kids. So it's, it's understandable. But sometimes in the analytics world, it's like the head of the analytics department, there's a whole bunch of, you know, young guys chirping away to try to get attention. Um, you know, and, and, and we all do it. I mean, you know, we do this podcast because we want to get the word out there and bring attention to the things that we think are important. So I will bet you that there's plenty of analytic guys and analytic podcasts and they're all out there doing their thing and they're trying to do the best they can. And, um, but in that world, it's similar to the privatization of baseball when, uh, everybody's selling you a product or, 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 or a theory or a way to do things, you know, they're, they're the, uh, they're the carpenter with the hacksaw that's going to, you know, forego the miter box and, and give you perfect crown molding cuts and everything's going to look good, right? They're selling themselves or they're selling their product. Well, in the world of numbers, um, you know, that, that ends up being a big necessity. That's how you get ahead. That's how you get that next best job. Um, but getting back to the PAP, it, it, I bring it up because it's, an ex, it's a really good example of um, a solid tool that's been around a long time. 
Now, of course, modern day guys will say, well, we've we've refined it. We've made it our own. We've improved it. It's way better than when uh, Bill James used it uh, in, you know, 1978 or whatever. Well, then how about all the other numbers you have? Are we going to find out that a year from now we've developed a better one? So that means all the decisions we made based on the numbers we have now are no good. Suppose I just signed a guy for $375 million based upon the analytics and the numbers that you produced for me at the time in 2024, but yet his this guy's contract you know, runs for the next eight years or <clears throat> in some instances 10 years, and in five years you're going to come to me and tell me that you've improved on the numbers and now they're even better. <clears throat> so should I go back and reduce the amount of salary that I'm paying that guy? Well, obviously it can't happen. But that's, that's where we get caught up if the only thing we're relying on is the numbers. Um, a solid tool, it continues to get revised, it continues to get new exposure, and it sometimes takes the human decision-making, the intuition of watching a pitcher and, and monitoring workload based on factors such as fatigue, rough innings, last start, repetition of delivery, release point, all the things that we know that are helpful in evaluating how a pitcher's doing. And when we eliminate them and we come up with, uh, let's say, five or six numbers that now become the scouting tool or the evaluation tool, well, not only are we missing the mark as far as monitoring workload, but in the big picture, we're really missing the mark because if that becomes the uh, evaluation tool, let's say these five or five or six logarithms or formulas or numbers, well, then eventually all the guys that we have in our organization are going to be clones of those numbers. <clears throat> all the guys that we attempt to develop are going to be clones. All the guys that play in the big leagues are going to be the same guy. Um, now, just like hitting with all the controversies about hitting, hitting styles and this and you know, launch angles and all of this and exit velocities and, and New York Yankees in the minor leagues, the two tools were exit velocity. Everybody was shooting for exit velocity. The guy could have a great exit velocity, but, you know, ground out to shortstop with the bases loaded two out and the young hitting coaches congratulating him. And, you know, he did a great job and, eliminating some of the other factors that actually would make a good hitter in that situation. So we see it happening all over. And that's why when I saw the another recent article on the PAP score, um, you know, I kind of chuckled because I, I developed the, the – I um, worked on and used what I call the development logarithm for starting pitchers back when I was a pitching coordinator for Brewers. And it was not it was not anything special. It wasn't like uh, I had an advanced degree in mathematics or anything like that. But I took all the existing ways that they were trying to measure a quality start, uh, the PAP score, the quality start uh, initially was called Bill James 2.0, uh, and all kinds of other things. And I took characteristics that um, – equated to a quality starting pitcher. First pitch strikes, early count outs, uh, 
uh, innings of 15 pitchers or less. Um, you know, those were some of the positive ones. And I basically then brought the negative ones in. So even in something like, you know, first pitch uh, strikes, if you hurt, hit a certain percentage of first pitch strikes, you know, you were awarded points. If you didn't hit the benchmark, it was negative points. And then they all went together and added up to a score very similar to the Bill James 2-0 score at the time. And this was your, your tool you created? Yes. What was it called? Um, I didn't really even give it a name. I just said game score. Game score. Right? And it was a quick quick reference point to when pitching reports would come in and I would see the score. And if it was a relatively high score, like in the 90s, I would immediately dive into that report and look to where the improvement occurred in that start for that pitcher. And then when I would go in to see that pitcher, I'd obviously commend them on the improvements in the certain areas. And then we would continue to work on all the different areas. And and the pitcher would start to understand where his strengths were. For example, <coughs> excuse me, if one start, you know, he's throwing 70% first pitch strikes and he pitches good game. And the next start, he throws 20% first pitch strikes and he pitches a bad game. Now there's going to be other factors, obviously in each one of those starts, but we could break them down into the characteristics and see what part of his individual game on that day was lacking, which part of the individual part of his game was, uh, was excellent. And so the score itself just became a quick reference point. And the reason for future investigation and in future conversation about how to improve in those areas. Um, and the uh, funny thing about it was at the time, we used to just email around um, the pitching coaches and the managers. All their reports were basically in Excel sheets, Excel documents, and then they would get emailed to the coordinators and the front office people and all the people that were on the, on the email list. So I developed it and put it into an Excel sheet and put all the formulas and calculations and computations in there and the whole thing. And it was being used the first year and, and to great success, to great success. And you could look over that all the guys that scored high on a continual basis ended up on the starting pitching side having very, very successful seasons also wins and losses, the RAs, and all the other functions, you know, hits, hits, uh, hits to innings pitched, uh, whip, everything, everything. I had a guy in, at one point in AAA, he dominated. He was pitching to a whip of 0.87 in AAA. This guy was dominating. And you would look, and the score would tell you the reasons why he dominated and in different areas of what where he was very successful in being a starting pitcher. Now the characteristics of being that starting pitcher didn't have anything to do with velocity or, or spin rate or, or individual, you know, individual execution or performance. It had to do with the characteristics that help you pitch deep into games successfully. Um, now, what you just did here, and this is important. I think when people take a look at analytics, they think analytics are objective and they're not. Any any formula doesn't matter what you call it, analytics, math, 
you know, uh, PAP, whatever you want to call it. You just did an audit of your own formula. You saw the number. It gave you an initial feeling. And then you deep dived it to make sure that that performance had a narrative. But you also went back to your formula to make sure the things are, are being weighted and valued the, the right way. That that right there, if people want to clip that, that is an audit of a formula. And that should be done on every analytics out there all the time because whoever made the formula, they're not objective. They're, the formula is as fallible as the person who made it. We, we all have bias in terms of what we think is important. So that's, a, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I went to audience and all. That right there is exactly what should happen every time a formula is used. That's responsible use of a formula. Right. Sorry. That's my, my, you did, that's my pat on the back there. No, it's all right. I, I actually got on a little bit of a tangent there also. But getting back to the PAP score, it just gives you an example of, of these scores. You mentioned SWORD. Also, if you, if you check swing, it's good. Or if you check swing, it's bad. Well, it was a, yeah, it was a pit, another pitcher score to see how many times they got the batter to, to check swing. And I didn't look. Once I saw it, I just kind of shook my head and I was like, oh, we, we covered it a little bit. And I think Jim Colonel touched on it a little bit earlier this week on the arms race. But uh, yeah, it was another arbitrary formula because without a context, you don't know. I mean, if right. it was good or bad, it's. Well, I'll give you an example of that, okay? If. If it's good for a pitcher to get check swings, a check a check swing is a result of the batter's perception whether he sees a good pitch or a bad pitch. So we're talking about a batter's perception. So if Sward takes a hold. Why aren't we measuring other areas that we've discussed here on this podcast that go into perceived velocity? Nope. All the training methods we see are all forced velocity. Everything we see. All right. So, so this is where the, the schasm is, if you would say, you know, the, the, the break is we keep delving into things that for me don't make sense. We're, we're going, we're going, it's like you're driving halfway into the neighborhood and then halfway out. If you're going down the road of perceived, of a hitter's perception, then why aren't we talking about all the things that go into perceived velocity? Why aren't we going talking into all the things? Why aren't the radar guns measuring the ball when it passes the hitter? Why are the radar guns measuring the ball out of the pitcher's hand? Um, you know, and again, that that's to take a deep dive in that would take a, a number of conversations. But with the PAP score, here's the thing. The modern analytic individual states that we've improved the PAP score. So some of the narrative that Bill James spoke about in its deficiencies and why other things would needed to be evaluated also along with it now is not necessary because we've improved the PAP score. That's where I see the problem. Yeah. They do it with offense too, with like runs created. Now it's weighted one runs created. Then it's weighted runs created. Plus they just keep, they keep as my, my older son says in the science, it's like uh, all these paleontologists, they just, 
they create another dinosaur and it's the same damn dinosaur it was before. It just has a, you know, they just present it smaller or bigger, fatter, faster. It's just, it's silly. Right. And so that's why on a development level, we, you have to be aware of these things because if they're ever changing, where's the fundamental of how to learn how to pitch, how to throw the ball properly? If we're throwing the ball and immediately checking our spin rate or our velocity or our pitch shape or we're looking at video or the track man or all the things and we're eliminating the feel out of our development, well, what happens when two years from now they come up with another number or they say, well, we've started to understand how it's more about the spin rate and the, and the pitch shape combined, and there's a third variable. So now do we, we attempt to adapt the way we throw the ball based upon the new number that was created? I, I personally think that's where all of a sudden we get all the manipulated pitches from, uh, and the sweeper and the this and the that. And on some of the other podcasts, I've heard people go into depth on the medical side of all the problems, these manually, um, uh, these manipulated pitches, these new pitches that everybody wants to come up with and has a new name. Uh, in the old days, they would just be called bad pitches. But now that we've figured out that the hitters can't hit because they're, they're uh, working on uh, their swing and, and their launch angle and their exit velocity, now it becomes a, a fashionable pitch which basically is just going to lead to more injuries down the line. So, you know, that, that's, that's the thing that we have to be wary about when it comes to numbers and new ways of measuring things. Um, the other thing that I wanted to take a quick review on, and uh, the last guy that mentioned it was, uh, was Tommy Craig last week when he discussed about the, uh, the brakes and accelerators. He gave the uh, audience the analogy of the drag car racing, and when uh, one takes his foot off the accelerator, he's going to stop. And he takes his foot off the accelerator and hits the brakes. That's your external rotators, and then the uh, parachute out the back. That's your scapula. But the thing that I I want to continue with there is that if the pitcher has trained his prime movers to make the movement of throwing the baseball and his stabilizers are the stabilizers. The external rotator and the scapular have done their work on the stability side and initiated the slowing down process. But now we have to transmit the rest of that energy back through the kinetic chain into the prime movers or to simplify it, the large muscles of the bodies now finished at the acceleration of the arm. And that's where I've continually always stated that Everything up to release point is about performance and execution, and everything after release point is about long-term health. It goes right along with the analogy with the uh, with the drag racer, but we do have to understand that the most important part of slowing the arm down is what happens after the parachute or the scapular stabilizers. Okay. The stabilizers initiate the slowing down process. The prime movers, the rest of the body, 
is responsible for finishing it. And that's where your long-term health comes into play. Um, so other people have talked um, in the past about the posterior chain, the emphasis on pulling muscles instead of pushing muscles, the scap stability, the spinal stability, the postural strength. Those are all things that are, are highly important. But we still have to get back to we still want the prime movers doing a majority of the work. Okay, they're the ones that are large enough to to absorb that work, to handle that workload. Um, when the prime movers don't work properly and aren't been trained correctly, and the movement patterns are off, or as Sandy Koufax has stated, when the levers are in the wrong position. Um, TC mentioned it's first the shoulder and then it's the elbow. It could be the low back, it could be the, the land knee, it could be the back hip. Um, you know, the, the list of injuries that pitchers, we've learned about pitching because one, our, our CAT scans and MRIs and all our testing and everything now is much better at, you know, identifying these things. But the list just keeps going and growing. Basically, it's, it's happening to really all the joints that are in charge with stabilizing. And instead of stabilizing, we ask them to do even far more because of our inefficient movement patterns. Yeah. And you always hit on hips and spine and scaps and in, the, in, in our audiences, because they, they understand what prime movers are. They didn't before they do now with, with your podcast, but what are there exercises that, you know, it doesn't matter, I guess if they're, we don't want kids training like adults, but are there simple exercises to strengthen the joints that you talked about? Well, the basic thing, especially for younger guys, all right, um, I highly recommend Christopher Romano's book, Move Like a Pro. Now, I might not necessarily agree with the title, but the content in that book is outstanding because he equates strength training for, and if we say little league age guys, just to give you a group. It's all about movement and then applying resistance. It's all about learning how to move correctly. And when I say move correctly, it's the prime movers are, are doing the movement and the stabilizer muscles are stabilizing. The joints are stable, the rotator cuff, the stable, the scap stable, spinal stability stable. Um, that's where he goes into all for the young population, the young market, anti-rotation. All right. The ability to stabilize before our focus becomes um, creating rotational force. Um, but the thing that all these guys have familiar, um, when we go past the posterior chain, uh, TC mentioned it. And when he said it last week, I, I, I chuckled inside because like I had a three group trainings last night and, and all the parts of their throwing program and trying to explain it that, that the importance of their throwing program is to one, warm up their entire body, not just their arm. <clears throat> and during the throwing program, our focus is on letting the arm go for the ride. <clears throat> just like TC, just same word. I've used those words. TC used them last week, excuse me, <clears throat> but letting the arm go for the ride. So what better place to start to feel that and understand it in the initial warm-up and throwing programs that you undertake? But nowadays, a lot of our focus is on 
throwing weighted balls that are way too heavy for the young population or playing long toss out the distances that are far too far for the younger population. And we're going straight into force creation instead of learning how to move properly. So to learn how the arm goes for the ride, sometimes I use the terminology, it's like your arm doesn't have any muscles. All right. Sometimes a simple thing is if I can get people in their throwing program to focus on their center of gravity or their, their, their navel belly button getting past their front hip and just have them focus on that and not even think about anything. Next thing you know, they're throwing perfect strikes and they're like, wow, I didn't, you know, I didn't even try, you know, I said, yeah, because you've got direction, you got balance, you got rhythm and your center of gravity is out front. And that means the prime movers are getting the arm out front. And then the arm really just has to, uh, you know, pull down and accelerate through the baseball out front. Um, I can't stress that enough. Um, one of the key uh, things to look for in young young guys throwing, and for all ages, but you see it a lot in the younger population, is that we're not throwing javelins. We don't throw the baseball from behind our body. We throw the baseball in front of our body. And when we attempt to throw the baseball from behind our body, we're creating a lot of force with the arm because the arm's playing catch up to get with the body. If the arm, if our focus is that we're throwing the ball in front of our body, it becomes quite easier and much more manageable to acquire the feel that I'm not using my arm. Uh, and I think that should be the focus of throwing programs, especially for little league age to, you know, even up to high school guys, is to understand that the force created is by the body, not by the arm. Uh, and that goes back to that, that story we told about Nolan Ryan being, you know, muscle activation test, you know, being hooked up to all these sensors. And they found out that when he threw the baseball, his external rotators just initiated the slowing down process, just like DC said about slamming on the brakes. And then everything else went back through the kinetic chain and was reabsorbed by the prime movers. But when they hooked up the, you know, pretty competent high school pitcher, uh, they found out that the shoulder muscles, especially in the arm with muscles were used during the whole entire process. So we want to learn to not use them. We want to learn to be, you know, Nolan Ryan, you know, not necessarily in velocity, but necessary in rhythm and timing that we're throwing the ball out front. Um, and the funny thing about how that all comes together is that I've talked about baseball flow with Dr. Ishmael Gallo, who hopefully is going to be a guest on the show coming up. Um, it's, it's not, you, you can go to his website and you can start to understand what it's about, but uh, basically the website was designed to actually sell the program. Um, so until I have conversations with Dr. Gallo and we go over a couple of things, um, I still, from, I had a two hour conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, I'm still fully behind everything that he's trying to accomplish, but, um, all of that stuff of baseball flow, it's hip mobility, spinal stability, scapular stability, the flow, the movement patterns, the levers in the proper places, all things that we've talked about. So that comes together in what we say. And then the next part is I already mentioned Christopher Romano and strength training for 
young ball players, how it's a movement related activity, all right, which we later apply resistance to. So it falls hand in hand with everything we've said. If we accomplish what Dr. Gallo's trying to get done and what Christopher Romano's trying to get done, now we've just hit the posterior chain, the discussions about letting your arm go for the ride, the anti rotation, and all the things that we've already talked about. Um, so it's just, it just, um, for me, it's natural that all of a sudden these things come together and, and that's why they work. And, and that's why you hear some people that, you know, are pretty knowledgeable in these type of things um, all over professional baseball and in the medical community. This is what they talk about. goes back to uh, one of our first guests, uh, Vinny Perez, and his conversations about that. Um that's all time. Now with your, your books, I don't want to, I don't want to skip your Facebook posts cause I enjoy reading them. I want to, I want you to touch on those, but with your book now, or you, you have two books that you're, one is pretty much done. The other one is almost there, but what, what is, what's the title? Do you have a working title yet? And how will that fit into the research that we, we talk about on the show? I know well, it's most triple spin, right? Is it, that's it. your well, the first book, um, being reviewed by the publisher right now, so we'll see how it goes. But the the first book is um, um, right now. The working title is "Pitching Mastery: A Comprehensive Guide for Youth Baseball Players." Now, there's a part of it that it it's on the triple spin and some of the things that we've just discussed. But in the most part, it, it it's it's more um, an introduction to youth baseball and. Uh, the importance of coaching, the importance of learning and different things. It's, it's really an introduction. Um, to dig deeper into things that we've discussed on this podcast, uh, when we talk about flow, when we talk about triple spin, um, the training protocols on how to try to accomplish that, that's going to be, I'm about halfway through. I have most of the content for that completed. Now I'm just trying to, um, you know, organize and have the proper tie-in so it flows together more as a book instead of a, you know, a series of uh, unrelated chapters or paragraphs, if you if you would say. Um, the first book, um, like I said, my initial thought process was I was just going to uh, make it available on Amazon as an ebook or a Kindle book and. Um, and it just started steamrolling. Next thing you know, a, a publicist wanted to uh, wanted to help out, and and her connections are with uh, literary agents and and the Simon Simon and Schuster Publishing Company in New York City. So I figured, uh, since I'm so new to this, let me uh, let me throw the first one out and just see what their thoughts are on it, and uh, maybe where maybe it does have to be adjusted. Maybe. Uh, and by doing that, it would um, it would help me in the process. If you would say, if you wanted to call the second book my my seminal you know project as far as this is you know really what um, Jim Rooney's all about. Um, so I kind of used the first book as a little bit of a of a testing ground to you know how it should flow and how things should you know be incorporated. So we'll see. Hopefully, uh, everything comes back to me positive and, and we can get that going uh, pretty quick. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to jump back um, for the audience. 
on on uh, the Facebook page Rooney Baseball. Uh, recently, I I put three three posts up, and and they're a little long, but um, they're discussions from different directions, from different angles on the importance of unstructured play and the learning process for young ball players. Um, it's in far more detail than we can discuss on the podcast and everything, like that, but but I really recommend it because um, it's really it really goes deeper into my whole thought process of how um, that little league age kids uh, should should really be worked with and what the process of their development is and how they learn uh, should be placed way way above. Uh, putting them in a structured competitive environment too early in their own personal development. Uh, and then, as I said, I'm going to be making over the next two days, some posts concerning the uh, fan graph, uh, fan graph blog of the, uh, the shrinking starting pitching load so that everybody can read it and we can discuss it. And I'll also be going to, into more detail on the pat workload and where you can find it and, and how to discuss it. Um, other than that, uh, in closing, um, finalizing the schedule for the trip up to uh, the New York metropolitan area to take a look at how the pitching kinetics program is uh, is developing and moving ahead. Uh, from the people, you know, on ground, on site at the time, everything so far has been positive. Um, so that's something that's uh, pretty good. Um, Oh, I, I missed one part. Um, on the one Facebook page, page, it also goes into the uh, thought process behind the smaller baseballs for the younger kids with uh, a couple of the research articles, including Dr. Fleissig's. Um, to me, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, it just, it just um, you know, like I said, when they developed a Little League field at 45 feet, they developed it for, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. And now we got four and five year olds playing on that field. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that go into it that you know we can discuss further. Uh, but also with the pitching kinetics program, I, I just want the audience to understand that if you're a facility owner or you're running a pitching program or you're doing some different things and you'd like to discuss the pitching kinetics program, please get in touch with me. Um, the website uh, through Facebook. Um, RooneyBaseball.com, uh, Coach Jim at RooneyBaseball.com is my email. Um, I, I'd be, you know, more than willing to talk with you if you thought it was a positive that you would like to add um, to your program, or maybe you're a travel organization that thinks that uh, it would be a good addition to your off-season scheduling. Uh, please get in contact; we can discuss uh, the details of that and all. Um, and then other than that, um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that, that I'm initiating some conversations into, uh, even if it's a couple of days a week, acquiring some indoor space, uh, especially for the, uh, for the older guys, the high school and a couple of college guys, maybe a couple of middle school guys, depending on how advanced they are, to uh, go into a little bit more uh, deeper dive into the whole uh, pitching kinetics program and then indoors it's a, a heck of a lot easier to apply some of the proper technology in the evaluation process so I'm keeping my fingers crossed we'll see how that goes and uh, 
pretty much that's it for this week. Um, oh, we gave an audience a lot to chew on. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the progression of the, the facility for you because I think once you have a house of your own, even if it's shared, if the flow of uh, individuals that'll come your way, I think it's going to explode. So all the right pieces are obviously you're the right guy to do that. There's nobody better in the industry. So I'm glad you're doing it. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we're getting the word out through this podcast and I'm, I'm happy people. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that you, well, you're not too far away from me. We're still a video shot away. I know you've been helping Tanner out with his, uh, his stuff from afar, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I think it's exciting for your area, um, to have you continue to, to push what your knowledge out there. So it's only going to benefit the baseball kids in Fort mill and in and around the Charlotte area. And hopefully yeah. in New York, New Jersey too. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. And and then you know even even further down the road, I mean, uh, if there's anybody out there in the listening audience that would like to become involved in a project such as this, uh, whether it be on the financial side, on the development side, um, as far as uh, putting together a facility to start to adapt some of these programs in. Uh, feel free to contact me. Uh, I have my own specific ideas on how this type of thing uh, should work, but uh, I'm always willing to learn from anybody out there that's got some positive things to bring to the table. Um, I do realize that uh, while in a perfect world, um, me doing my own thing would would initially start out on a smaller basis. Um, and then possibly if it was on a larger scale and I, you know, went into partnerships with some people or even some, uh, you know, strength and conditioning and peak performance people along the lines of Christopher Romano and uh, similar to what I did up in New York with, uh, uh, with uh, Vinny Perez. I think that gets the message even to a broader audience and then we could maybe help out even more kids. So I'm always open to that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll always be a little wary and, and there'll be a checklist of things that we, we, we should discuss, but, uh, if anybody's interested in any of those, uh, concepts, please feel free to contact me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would encourage people to do that. This is a, it's, it's different. It's, it's, and I'll just leave it at that. It's different. It's not the same as what you're seeing out there. And anybody that loves the game, wants to see the game grow and wants to stay ahead of the curve with keeping kids pitching productively, but also staying healthy. Uh, Jim's the guy. So uh, I want to thank our audience. We gave you a lot to chew on today. 64,000 should be 65 by the end of the week. Got a little presumptuous at the beginning saying 65. Don't want to jinx it, but uh, support our guys, Jaws Bats, uh, RVG at checkout. Tanner's using the M110. He loves it righty and lefty. I recommend it highly. Thanks to Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies for recognizing us. Still got to fill out the paperwork for the second one. Millions, uh, appreciate you you uh, loving us enough to partner in marketing. So we're excited for that movement moving forward. And Jim, thanks for a great episode on Toe the Rubber today, episode 424 in our network. And uh, with that, guys, have a great weekend. We're getting close to the weekend. And uh, Jim, thank you for what you do. We appreciate you. Well, thank you, Dave. And uh, thank you, audience. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, just keep one thing in mind. All of a sudden, the warm weather's starting to roll in after that Arctic blast which doesn't necessarily mean let's go outside and play catch for two, what, two and a half hours and be worn out. Let's uh, always remember this is all about monitoring the workload and doing things uh, the right way. So uh, don't overdo it. Good message. Good way to end it here. <laughs>